Let me ask you as we get started, what are some of the things in life that you find to be especially beautiful, captivating? Uh, some of the sights and the experiences of life that you find just to be especially beautiful. I think that if you gave it a minute, you might be thinking right now, uh, but if you gave it a minute, I'm sure that you could come up with a number of things. And I'm going to give you a number of things. Just see what you think of some of my selections. I'll just read them off to you. An oak tree that is silhouetted against a night sky brilliant with stars. A wide open field, gently rolling deep green and sunlit. A family sitting down for a meal, happily. And the kids doing the dishes afterward, happily. The soft glow of tree lights on Christmas Eve night. A homemade loaf of bread on the counter, hot out of the oven. Your home team's fans standing, cheering as one. An elderly married couple, fading in life, but undying in devotion. To me, these are beautiful things in life that God has given to us. There is, however, something strange about the beautiful things of this earth. For so many of them, whether you're talking about objects or experiences, the closer you get to them, the less beautiful they are for a lot of beautiful things in this world. I'll give you an example of that. Actually, a few examples. Um, a couple of years ago, my parents went on a trip to the Rocky Mountains in Alberta. And uh, my mom made the comment a couple times afterward that mountains weren't all that she thought they would be. She said, it's true, you know, when you're far away from them, you're at a distance, it's all mountain majesty. And you're in awe of what God has done and the beauty in the earth. But the closer you get, not so much, you know, it's not so beautiful. The colors are more bland and there's just a lot of rocks strewn everywhere. I don't know if my dad agreed with her assessment, but that's what she thought. The closer she got, the less beautiful it was. Not just uh, scenery or objects, but experiences are like this too. I think a lot of us have found this to be true on Christmas Day. There is the, the build-up to Christmas Day. There is the excitement, the anticipation. But when you get there, a lot of the time, it's just not the same. There's that, there's that letdown. And by the end, there's, okay, let's move on to the, the next day, you know? And we're, we are like that when it comes to the past. When we were there, you know, experiencing the event, whatever it was, we took it for granted. Now that we're looking back, we have this nostalgia and we have this longing for the past. We thought we, we have this mind that, you know, it was more beautiful back then. It was better then. But when we were there with those people, that time, that place, we took it for granted because up close, things are not so beautiful. The moon from far away is a beautiful thing. Uh, you have this, you know, this thing, I'll just keep it at that, <laughs> hanging in the sky, but up close, it's very gray and very dusty. And then there's human skin. Um, you get real, I, I have seen 
my skin magnified by 400 times. And I don't know what you think of me far away, but up close, I'm hideous. (laughs) When you step back from the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you get what the Bible so often gives to us, a big picture look, a wide-angle view of Christ, and you think of who He is, God of very God, light of very light, from everlasting to everlasting, God, before the mountains were brought forth, God, who became one of us, who came the Christ in the flesh, living for us, dying for us, rising again, conquering the grave, triumphant in glory, coming again in victory. He's the beautiful Christ. But unlike the things of this earth, Jesus is extraordinarily beautiful whether you're getting that big picture wide angle view or whether you're right there zoomed in extremely close. He is still stunningly beautiful. And we get a stunning up-close look at Jesus in Psalm 45. Psalm 45, if you look at the little title of the psalm, you can see that it was written by the sons of Korah, a musical group that had many generations in Israel history. They penned this either for David or for one of his 18 descendants who would take his place on the throne. But they wrote this for one of the kings on the wedding day of the king. And they wrote this song as a um, royal, lavish praise to the king. Again, on his wedding day. The praise here is, is really spectacular. Royal. And to be honest, it really feels like too much. When we talk about praise being over the top, this feels like it is way over the top. Ten years ago, uh, Shri and I were uh, in Arlington, Texas, watching a uh, series of ball games between the Rangers and the Blue Jays. And before one of the games, I remember seeing this long line of people going up one of the aisles. They're, they're waiting in line ahead of a game to get the, the autograph of one of the ball players. And I love baseball, always have, and some of my, you know, childhood heroes were, were ball players. But at the time, having matured and so on, I thought, isn't this just too much for a man? A little over the top, just to wait so long in line to get his signature scrawled across something. Too much for a man who puts his pants on one leg at a time, I'm assuming like everybody else, just felt like too much. And it feels in Psalm 45 like this is too much for a mere man. Again, the initial writing was for a man, for David or one of his sons who would take the throne. Now, of course, when we have any kind of praise to a king, whether it's vocal or whether it's written, there's always that that flattery that's over the top. And that's really conventional in praise to a monarch. So we, we use language like, oh, king, live forever. 
And nobody says, whoa, 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 what are you talking about? Because we just understand this is a conventional way of talking to the monarch, right? But ever since this psalm was written, it has felt like to all who have read it that this psalm is above and beyond even that, even the conventional flattery. It feels like it has to be for someone else, for someone who is more, not just mere flesh and blood, for capital S someone else. And we know with New Testament age hindsight that that's exactly what this psalm is. There is an initial fulfillment and song of praise to a Davidic king who was like us, you know, one leg at a time kind of guy and who was also like us, a sinner. But ultimately, this song was penned with um, the spirit of prophecy speaking of Jesus. Psalm 45 is a meditation on the beauty of Jesus. And I just wonder, as we get started with this, do you think upon how beautiful Christ is? Like we sang in Ferris, Lord Jesus. I mean, even those words right there. Fairest, Lord Jesus. We don't use words like fairest so much, but the, the first two words of that last verse that we sang, beautiful Savior, is your heart captivated by the beauty of Christ. The psalmist begins. Let's go back to verse 1. He says, My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. The Lord has given to him words, beautiful words to be ascribed to the king and his heart overflows with these words. Um, I think one of the songs that we sing that could compare to what the psalmist says in verse 1 would be that that newer song, 10,000 Reasons. Bless the Lord, 10,000 Reasons. We sing it maybe three times every every year, so we've probably sung it maybe a dozen, 15 times as a church. And there's a phrase in there. It says, um, uh, Sing like never before, O my soul. Worship His holy name. I think it's a, a parallel sentiment or praise to what we have in verse 1. And and that thought, sing like never before. The psalmist is saying, my heart bursts with these words for the king. So we sing again, sing like never before. We're really preaching to our hearts as we sing those words. Have you ever thought when you have sung those words, really? I mean, come on. Sing like never before. Does that mean more in tune than ever before? Because if it does, then I can, you know, I can stand for a lot of improvement every time. So, like today, I was thinking, what is Sheree thinking when I'm trying to hit these notes? Sounding all nasally and pathetic. (laughs) I think she's probably learned to appreciate it for what it is or ignore it or something. Anyway. Um, I don't think that's what we mean, though, when we say sing, sing like never before, right? It doesn't mean more volume uh, than ever before. 
we could think, you know, sing with more volume than George Artis. Now, that would be something if, if we could do that. But we know it's not talking about being more in tune. It's not talking about more volume. But it's talking about with more heart. It's talking about with a fuller heart for sure when we say those words. How do we accomplish that? How do we sing like never before, even if we, you know, sing a song a hundred times? This is what the Christian life is, that we are growing, that we are progressing. Think of it like this. Our knowledge of Jesus must continually be expanding. Our hearts must be constantly enlarging with the knowledge of Christ. And when our knowledge of Jesus expands, so does our worship. In fact, when when that knowledge truly sinks in, it's inevitable that the worship will expand. And as a Christian, I can rejoice in the Lord that I sing with more passion in my heart than ever before as I grow in the Christian life and increase in the knowledge of God. I love to sing with God's people. I love just to, even as we're singing, just to stop and think, listen to our voices joined together and hear the, the faith that you are expressing and and so on. I'm kind of going on too much, but you get the idea. This is what the psalmist has in his heart. He is singing like never before. His heart is bursting. His heart is overflowing with this pleasing theme because he knows the one to whom he sings. He knows him. You can't sing as you ought to sing unless you truly know him. So he says in verse 2, again, as we read earlier, You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. And you hear some conventional flattery for the king in in these words. But again, there's more than that. He says, Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. I mean, what a king, right? This king has no rival in anything. I mean, just look over again as I speak these couple of verses. He is the best looking. He is the best speaking. And he is the best fighting. I mean, this king wins every contest, which is kind of a a cheap way to put it, but I mean, that's what it is. Now, we also know, we, we have said this is actually ultimately about Jesus. Now, think of what Isaiah wrote about Christ in Isaiah chapter 53, and you compare that to the beginning of verse 2, and there seems to be a conflict here. Because Isaiah said of him, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him. I mean, he wasn't noticeable. He wasn't noteworthy. He did not stand out for the beauty of his physical looks. He didn't. And he said he had no beauty that we should desire him. So what? how do we reconcile those two passages? Psalm 45, 2, which is about Jesus, which says he... You are the most handsome of the sons of men. And Isaiah says he had no beauty whatsoever. 
You can't see Jesus now. But if you could see Him now, the beauty of Christ, the eyes of a sinner would explode at the glory of Christ. We would be incinerated to see Jesus as we are now. A person with indwelling sin can't see Him in His fullness. Do you remember John when he has a vision of Christ in Revelation 1? And he speaks of the beauty. He says, he talks about uh, this one, the Son of Man, before whom He fell as dead because He couldn't bear the sight, which wasn't a direct sight. It was a, a sight by vision. But He said He... He, the Son of Man, has a voice with the clarity of a trumpet and at the same time thunders like the roar of many waters. He said His hair is the brilliant white of the ancient wisdom. His eyes flash fire, searching and knowing. His feet are the burnished bronze of a power to tread over all His enemies. And His face shines like the sun at full strength. And so that's what the psalmist is talking about. You find such a parallel in verses 2 and following to what John wrote in Revelation of the beauty of God's Son. The psalmist speaks of this incomparable beauty and speech and power. He says he will ride to victory, utterly defeating all of his foes. Everyone who opposes truth and meekness and righteousness. He will defeat them all and He will establish truth and meekness and righteousness on the earth. This is our King. By the way, quick insertion here. You know this already, but we always need reminding. There is no political Messiah. There is no political Savior to be found in this sinful human race. Christians know that we don't get our hopes up too high and our grieving never gets too low because of Christ. Our hope is in Christ. And in this political process and the campaign season, we're never overly affected, overly affected because our hope is in Jesus. He is the one who will once and for all establish truth and meekness and righteousness in the earth. And I don't think you can find those three things in any of those who are candidating for office these days. Verses 6 and 7. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of a brightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Even in a, a quick cursory glance at these verses, do you notice how odd this language is and a little bit troubling? Because you think, whoa, 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 you are going way too far in your praise of, of whatever king because he says he calls him God. You see that? Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. It's, he says, this groom king is God. And then he calls another God. And he says that the groom 
king who is God belongs to a God who anoints him. And it's, uh, without New Testament hindsight, this is potentially troubling and confusing. But we know that the God who is eternally God and yet belongs to God, the God whom God blesses and rewards is Jesus, God's Son. Jesus is the person about whom this psalmist is writing. We would know this without Hebrews 1, but we know it especially by Hebrews 1. Because these verses 6 and 7 are actually quoted in Hebrews 1. And there, the author of Hebrews says that God says this and he sings this over his son. I want you to, to get this so bad. It took me, it has taken me so long to get this as a, a rock solid core conviction in my heart and a cause for so much joy and gratitude and hope and all of it. I, I want all to get this, but I really think a lot, many will take more maturity and faith to see the beauty of this, just to be honest with you. But this, uh, think of it this way. Um, have you ever known a parent who goes on and on and on about their child? You, you see it on social media a lot, you know, parents going on and on and on about their 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 children, especially if they only have one and it's a, a baby or whatever, um, just going on about their child. That's what God is like. That's what the Bible is. God the Father going on and on and on about His Son. I I read recently, someone said that God the Father preaches Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit and said, that's what the Bible is. And I had never thought about it in those terms exactly before, but I thought, that's it. I mean, that's what I want to do with my life. I I want to preach Jesus to the glory of the Father in the power of the Spirit. This is what the Bible is. God preaching His Son in the power of the Holy Spirit. And you see it in Psalm 45, that by the Spirit working in this human instrument, God is singing the praises of His Son. Something else to consider, not only have you, you know, are, maybe you have been one of these parents, maybe you are one of these parents right now that just goes on and on and on about their, their kid. I'm not saying it's necessarily a bad thing. It's a, an instinct we have from God, I believe. But have you also known a parent to go to war for their child? I have, and I felt like that before. When your child is put down, your child may suffer an injustice or some form of bullying, and you have that, that paternal instinct rise up like a fire and you're ready to go to war for your kid. That instinct also comes from God. And of course, it can have sinful uh, expressions which are not from God. But the instinct itself is from God. If you turn your back on Jesus God's Son and refuse Him, the last thing that God will do is just look away. 
The last thing that God will do is just ignore it. But on the other hand, if you agree with God about the beauty of Jesus Christ, His Son, you cannot imagine the reward that God will lavish on you in glory for agreeing with God about His Son and setting your heart with God on Jesus, His Son. Jesus Himself said, whoever honors Me, the Father will honor. So I'm not making this up. God will reward and honor and exalt with His Son all those who honor Jesus. So we say God goes on and on about His Son. We ought to as well from the heart sing the praises of Jesus on and on and on and love every minute of it. Let's keep going. Verses 8 and 9. We haven't read these verses yet. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. The point is this. All around the king is beauty. Beautiful smells. You see it? Your robes are all fragrant. Beautiful sounds. The stringed instruments. Melody of music. And beautiful sights all surround the king. They are from him. They are with him. And they are to him. All this beauty. I have said to you before, I'll say it again. I'm quoting someone else. All beauty is God's beauty. All beauty. Like the the beauty that is talked about here is God's beauty. All beauty in the earth is God's and reflecting His glory and His beauty. I just want to urge you Don't settle your heart finally, ultimately, on anything of the beauties of this earth. All that's good and beautiful and true in this world, don't settle your heart finally, ultimately, on those things, but settle your heart on God and God forever. More than 1,600 years ago, a church leader by the name of Augustine wrote in his work, Confessions, I want you to listen to these words. Pay careful attention. He said, What do I love when I love my God? Not material beauty or beauty of a temporal order. Not the brilliance of earthly light. Not the sweet melody of harmony and song. Not the fragrance of flowers, perfumes and spices. Not manna or honey. Not such as the body delights to embrace. It is not these that I love when I love my God. And yet, when I love Him, it is true that I love a light of a certain kind. A voice, a perfume, a food, an embrace. But they are of the kind that I love in my inner self when my soul is bathed in light that is not bound by space, when it listens to a sound that never dies away, when it breathes fragrance that is not borne away on the wind, when it tastes food that is never consumed by the eating, 
when it clings to an embrace from which it is not severed. That is what I love when I love my God. Do you understand what Augustine was saying? He's saying there are beautiful things in this world. The sights, the sounds, the smells. Except, of course, he said it very poetically. But then he pointed us from the these things below to their source and to the one whom they reflect in heaven above. And he said, yes, there is a light I love when I love my God, but it's the light that never fades. There is a sound that I love when I love my God, but it's the sound that never dies. There is a food that I love when I love my God, but it's the food that can never be finally consumed. And there is an embrace that I love when I love my God, but it's the embrace from which I can never be separated. All of these things we love on this earth are found ultimately in God, eternally, unbound, unconfined, eternal in God. Now the question that we need to think on is, how how in the world do you respond to such a king as this? So now in the psalm, beginning in verse 10, the psalmist addresses the bride-to-be of this king. Let's read verses 10 and 11. Hear, O daughter, and consider, and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. Forget your people. Forget your house. To to do that means she must leave her home behind and she must cleave to her husband now and give to him all of her loyalty and love um, to him and, and all of his. How can she do this? How can she do this with joy? How do you leave it all behind with joy? For Jesus, your King. You have to know your King. This bride-to-be, she has to know the King like the psalmist knows the King. If she doesn't know the King, if she doesn't understand the heart of the One who sets His heart on her, she's not going to want to leave home and family behind. She's definitely not going to do it with joy. But if she knows the heart of the one who sets his heart on her, then she can leave it all behind with joy and with gladness. We we say uh, in this life, beauty is in the eyes of the beholder. Which means what one person finds beautiful, another person can find boring, bland. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. It's subjective. That's not the case with this king. The beauty of Jesus Christ is not subjective. It's not for one person to take and another person to leave. It's not for one person to find beautiful and another person to be justified in saying that it's boring. Eh. The beauty of Jesus isn't subjective. You see, it's not that of all the beauties in the world, He is the most beautiful. It's not that of all the goods in the world, He is the goodest. He is the best. He is the standard 
of beauty. He defines beauty. He is the standard of greatness, of truth and meekness and righteousness. So listen, if if you find anything in this world that is good or beautiful or true, it's because it's in accord with him. That's what it means that he's the standard and he defines what beauty is. And if you find anything in this world that's repulsive, untrue, not good, anything that has a flaw is because it's out of accord with him. So listen, you think of things that are not good, not beautiful, not true. The first thing that we ought to think of is our hearts. Apart from God, apart from Christ, your heart is not a pretty sight. My, like I said earlier about my skin magnified 400 times being hideous, you know, that's the case with our hearts. I mean, if you find litter on the road and you're thinking, ah, why do people have to do this? It's so gross and it, you know, ruins the beauty. It's nothing compared to our hearts apart from God. And yet, this king who is the standard of beauty set his heart on you to make you his own. He said, he, she, they will belong to me. They will be my bride forever. I am going to have them. I love them. I want them united to me for eternity. And when you know this king who has set his heart on your petty, jealous, selfish, ugly heart like mine is, then you say, when he calls you to himself, I can go. I can go to him. I can leave it all behind. Whatever is dear and precious to me, I can leave it behind for this king who has set his heart on me. Listen, Jesus calls us. Don't stop paying attention now. Jesus says, leave house and brothers and sisters and mother and father and children and lands for His sake and for the Gospel. In that list of things that Jesus calls us to leave, that is not necessarily, absolutely, literally, but in your heart, Leave it behind compared to Him. Like He said in another place, you know, that we should hate these things, which means in comparison to our love for Him, these things, our affection for those things appears like hatred. You will find in that list of... I'm going to say it again. Leave house and brothers and sisters and mother and father and children and lands for His sake and for the Gospel. In that list, you will find the hardest things you will ever have to do. Ever. How can you leave home behind. How can you leave the dearest people in the world to you behind? You have to know the King who calls you to let goods and kindred go, quoting from an old hymn, and this mortal life also. You must know this King. You must realize His beauty. In verse 12, there is a promise made to this bride-to-be. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. So the promise is to this bride, this is held out as a reward to her. This is motivation to leave all behind. She has promised that once she is joined to the king, she will share the honor of the king because she's united to him. 
His honor will be for her as well as long as she is united to Him. And this was a real encouragement to an actual young woman in time and space history to encourage her to let it all go. She read these words. She read these words. These words are written for you and for me as we are called to consider, no, called to obey the command to leave all behind. We are promised. Again, the ultimate fulfillment is in Jesus. Because you are united to Jesus, all is yours. Not necessarily presently, but it's true. As Paul said, all is yours. And you are Christ's. And Christ is God's. So as you are united to Christ, you have all the good of Jesus to share in. That's why the Bible says God has blessed you in Christ, in your union with Christ, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm. God has not withheld from you. So this woman, I mean, this was like, whoa, this is big reward, big promise. Nothing. That is nothing. That's not a drop in the ocean to what we have in Jesus Christ. Verses 13 and following. All glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes she is led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. It is time. She's been betrothed to the king for a long time and she has been preparing, readying herself for the day when it's time to to leave all behind and cleave to her husband. She is beautiful for him. Her heart is ready for him. And when she leaves all behind, it's with joy and gladness fulfilled. And we're looking here. This promise 3,000 years ago is ultimately about us. It's about us who are the people of Jesus Christ. As we look forward to the day when Christ comes and the dead in Christ rise first and those who are alive and remain at the coming of the Lord follow them so that we are forever with the Lord. This is talking about our wedding day. Listen to these words in Revelation 19. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. Do you see the parallels between Psalm 45, the verses we just read, and Revelation 19, what I just read to you? Do you see what the the future, the sure future is for all of those who are united to Christ? If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, He is your Lord and your Savior. You have made been made right with God through Him. This is your future and not a thing in this world. Not a persecution. Not a suffering whatsoever can take this from you. This is ours in Jesus Christ. And it, as I was reading, I thought about Adam 
when you know Eve was created, uh, made from his side and, and brought to him, and he said, at last. And those words will be on our lips when we are finally together all with Christ at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And when we see Him, we will say, at last. And you know what? I believe with all my heart that those words will be on His lips too. At last, I have my people. I have my bride at last. Are you preparing yourself for that day? Are you working in concert with the Holy Spirit to ready yourself and to beautify your heart for the coming of our King. Finally, we have this promise of to the King. In place of your fathers shall be your sons, verse 16. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. The eternal praise of the nations is Jesus Christ, God's Son. And one day He will stand before us all. And all the nations, all those who belong to Him, will will roar. The song of praise will roar from the people of God. Revelation 7 gives us a vision of it. A great multitude that no one can number from every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages, stand before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, crying out, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Just a few questions that I want you to consider in your heart as we close. Is there any pattern to your life? Any ongoing pattern, habit, what have you, that doesn't reflect the beauty of the King? Are there habits and passions and loves in your life that aren't in accord with His beauty? Do you love anything right now that you can't thank Him for? Do you love anything that you can't thank Him for? Is anything pleasing you at this place in your life that is displeasing to Him? Do you have any higher love? The time of this King is returning. He he will come, just like we say about everything else, before you know it. He will be here. Are you ready and are you prepared? Are you making yourself beautiful for King Jesus? Listen, He is calling you. He is calling me. He's commanding each and every one of us to let the things of this earth go. Don't let them be your first passions. Don't let them be your first love. Let them go. You know, I'll I'll tell you, just honestly, I I don't want to mention this too much, because anyway, um, I, I have a hard time leaving home. You know, I've said this every time I come back. I have a hard time leaving my land behind. But I I read earlier in the year what Jesus said. Leave house and brothers and sisters and mother and father and children and lands for His sake and for the Gospel. 
But we're all called to that. We're all called to that. How can you do it? Know. Know in your heart the beauty of the King. And know who it is that has set His heart on you. And you will say, I'm coming to you, Christ. I'm coming to you, Jesus. And nothing can hold me back. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your Son. Oh God, we would, we would not have a hope. All would be lost. We wouldn't have a beauty. We'd have no understanding of what is good and beautiful and true except you have shown yourself to us and shown yourself to us in your Son, our Lord Jesus. Oh God, we hear the command to leave behind family and household. All that we hold dear on this earth for Jesus. And our hearts struggle. We want to, and yet we want to hold on to. So I pray, Father, that this message of the beauty of Jesus would sink in our hearts and we would make, please, help us to make Jesus our lifelong obsession, our lifelong meditation. Give us eyes to see His beauty. Help us to know Him. Make us to know Him so that we leave all behind for Him in obedience to Him. To your name be praise. Lord, we are looking forward to the day when we are with you. Help us to be faithful until then. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.